following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Sometimes boys and girls, life can really be a mess. You met up. You are embarrassed. Perhaps it's your fault on the soccer field that the team lost. Or perhaps you just did terrible on a test. Or maybe it was that piano recital where you knew the piece frontwards and backwards and suddenly in the middle of it, your mind went blank and you just froze. Those are awful times. And as children, when we have times like that, we have one comfort, and that is, I know that my mommy and my daddy love me. And we can rest in that reality, regardless of our failures, that we know that we are loved by our parents. Now, we as adults can experience something of the same thing in our own relationships. You've had a really bad day at work, you're beaten up, and you come home, and you're just looking forward to coming home, being with your wife, knowing that there, in that context, all is going to be well. Or... You ladies have had a bad day with the children. You can't wait for your husband to get home. All you want to do is sit with him. You don't have to talk. You're just going to find comfort in his presence. You see, we find comfort in family. We find comfort in loved ones. We can find comfort in friends. But there's some things that family and friends cannot do for us. In Job's case, as we started reading here, he'd been deserted by family and friends. Where then do you turn? That's the answer. Where do you turn? That's the answer of this text before us this morning. In life's greatest problems, with that premature baby, with the serious medical condition, with the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, or just the sense of failure and depression, where do you turn? That's the question by the Holy Spirit that Job answers for us in this last glorious paragraph of Job chapter 19, verses 23 to 29. In this chapter, Job is answering the accusation of Bildad and the friends as he's been doing. And perhaps you remember in chapter 18 that Bildad jumped on him with both feet and accused him indirectly of every imaginable sin being under the awful judgment of God. It's in response to that condemnation that Job speaks in chapter 19. The first two-thirds of the chapter, he reminds them and the spirit, us, that what a, a, a persecuted or a distressed believer needs in time of distress is sympathy, not condemnation, is truth, not error, and is friends and not desertion. Now, it's out of this pit, so to speak, of desertion. This uh, feeling of being uh, abandoned all that uh, Job comes now in a sudden moment of light to this most fantastic uh, confession that we have before us here in verses 23 to 29. And from this we learn that um, our confidence in Christ our Redeemer, or is in Christ our Redeemer, who shall raise us from the dead, that Confidence bolsters us in times of affliction, strengthens us against slander. Confidence in Christ, your Redeemer, 
who will raise you from the dead, bolsters you in times of distress and affliction, and enables you to resist the slanders of enemies. We're going to look at two sections here, under two headings. Verses 23 to uh, 27, a confident confession. And verses 28 to 29, a uh, confident challenge. We'll begin with this confident confession with, in verses 23 and 24, a, an expression of confidence that Job now makes. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. The, the word oh twice actually means would that. It's an expression of great, deep longing and desire. And what is it that Job longs for here? He wants a written testimony. He wants a legal transcript. Uh, the word uh, inscribed is a verbal form for the word that means a statute or a precept. Now you remember that Job has been asking for a day in God's court. He wants an opportunity to answer the false charges that are brought against him. And it's not happening. God does not seem to be um, answering him. But he comes now to this, this new confidence that he expresses here that he wants uh, a transcript of vindication. Not in this present life, you see. Notice that he wants it inscribed. He wants a legal record. My words were written, ascribed in a book. But he doesn't want them simply in a book of papyrus or paper. Not even on a, a clay tablet. No, Job says, I want these words of my vindication, this confession that I'm about to make, I want these words inscribed, engraven on a stone. And then I want the, the letters filled in with lead so that they stand out. It won't last just for a couple of hundred years. We can go to our cemetery and we can find some tombstones with engraven on a stone, people's names and dates. And some of those last a couple hundred years, but they begin to fade. But Job says, no, I want this in a rock. I want them engraved in a rock, and I want it filled in with lead. Now, this is the confidence that he's expressing that God is going to vindicate him. And God answers this prayer, doesn't he? We don't have to go to the Middle East and look for a rock. God inscribed this very testimony in his holy word. A word that David reminds us in Psalm 119 is an eternal word. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. A word that does not fade. A word that will never go away. It's God's word. It is as is, is eternal as God is eternal. And God has inscribed this confident expression right here in Scripture. But you know, he's done something else as well. Because he tells us in Jeremiah chapter 31 that his words, his law that was engraven on a stone, which was a great blessing, are now written on our hearts. Same word that Job uses here. Uh, written in a book, no. Now God's words are written on our hearts. It means our consciences are being taught. We better understand the mind of God. And we also now have the desire and the 
ability in the Holy Spirit to begin to walk by the light of God's word. So we have something even greater, don't we? Is we have God's word written, God's word then engraven in our own hearts. And what is to be your response to that? The word of God on your heart. Well, Solomon says in Proverbs 3, there should be our desire to write God's word on our hearts. It's the same word, right. That as God has given us his word, as he has inscribed it in our hearts, then we make use of that inscription in our hearts. How? How can you write God's word on your heart? By meditation. As you read scripture, prayerfully meditating, studying, applying it to yourself, seeking then grace from the Holy Spirit to be able to walk by the light of the word. And we then have this great testimony of God inscribed on our hearts. So Job is expressing confidence here, isn't he? He's about to say something, and he wants the record of what he says to be made permanent as long as this age. Which brings us then to his confession. The confession in verses 28 to 27 is a threefold confession. It's one of the most amazing statements in the Old Testament. He begins by saying, as for me, in my case, regardless of what others have said about me, regardless of my own weight of terror and destruction, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. You know, we've lived with these words for so long, I think that we might not even begin to, to penetrate the profundity of them. This is by a wonderful inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Job now sees something that few had seen up to this point. The word, the name Redeemer, in the unfolding history of redemption, is never used before here. This is not a word that he learned from anybody else. And it comes from uh, the verb uh, to redeem. And you know how important that word is in our salvation. Uh, God has redeemed us from the bondage of sin. He's restored our lost inheritance. He's taken away the guilt and the punishment. We know that later on in the Mosaic economy, this word that's used here, this kinsman redeemer, is going to come and pay off the debt of his kin. But Job didn't have any of that. And, the, and this form, the noun form of this verb is, is used here. It's used in Ruth. It's used once in the psalm, the psalm that we have for our meditation. And it's used many times in Isaiah in the servant of Jehovah passages. It's a very rich concept that uh, we have a redeemer. But Job saw this idea of the Redeemer. He saw it in all of his wrestlings. You could say, well, Job, why are you so confident? You, you've, you've confessed a number of things to us. You've confessed that you know that you're going to die. You confess that God has turned against you. You confess that you know that God is your enemy. You know that uh, you'll have no vindication in this life. You know that you're not going to be restored to your state. Job, what in the world is going How do you say this? Well, Job has been growing in faith. 
And Job, if you boys and girls have seen a butterfly trying to come out of the cocoon and how it has to wrestle to come out of that cocoon, that's what Job is, is happening, what's happening here, is wrestling. Think of some of the things. Chapter 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will give my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. So he says, I'm a godly man. In some way, I'm going to come into God's presence. He's wrestling with this absence of God. But then his faith grows. Chapter 14. Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in Sheol, in the grave, that thou wouldst conceal me until thy wrath returns to thee. Thou wouldst set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Thou will call, and I will answer thee. Thou will long for the work of thy hands. He's seeing more, isn't he? God's calling. God's going to bring him. And then in chapter 16, O earth, do not cover my blood, and let there be no rest. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. Even before all of this, he'd long for a mediator. But he's searching, he's, he's pleading, and his faith is struggling in the midst of, of the oppression and all of the accusations until suddenly, it's like the clouds are gone and, and there's the moon. Or it's like seeing Mount McKinley in August. Mount McKinley, Mount Denali, highest mountain in North America. We were there a few years ago in August, and we were going up there to see it. And we turn a curve in the road, and there it is. So I stop the car, back up. My son and I get out, and we're going to go look at it. But my wife says, well, I'll see it later. She didn't see it later. You don't see it in August. It's always covered in clouds, except right there the clouds lifted. We were back a few years later, the same thing. It was covered in clouds. Suddenly for Job, the cloud over his Mount McKinley was gone. The cloud before the moon was gone. And he says, I know this one for whom I've been longing, for whom I've been seeking, for whom I've been appealing. I know that he is my redeemer. And he lives. He's going to redeem Job. He's going to remove the bondage and, and the guilt and, and all of the struggles of Job's life. And notice the personal, my redeemer. He doesn't say, I know there is a redeemer. I know that there's a redeemer who lives. No, he says, I know my redeemer lives. He had embraced him by faith. He had embraced this one who was going to stand between him and uh, the justice of God, who would redeem him, who would vindicate him. But now when is that vindication going to take place? That's the second part of his confession as he continues. Second half of verse 25. And at the last, at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Now Job has this sense that the Redeemer, who is God, is going to take his stand in a form of man on the earth. I'm not saying he understood all of this clearly, but he now confesses that the living Redeemer 
is going to descend and take a stand on the earth. Interesting, the word for earth is actually dry dust. Perhaps there's even an allusion here to the fact that Job knows he's dust, he's returning to dust, but the conqueror of death is coming. And he's going to take his stand. And so now he is anticipating this remarkable reality that the living God who is the Redeemer is going to come to earth and take a stand. In other words, he's going to be a man standing on the earth. Now, that's not as unusual as one might think. Our Savior tells us that Abraham longed to see his day and saw it. If Abraham, who lived before Job, could anticipate the coming of the Redeemer incarnate, then surely Job as well uh, knew through uh, the tradition of the church, the revelation had been passed on, that this was something that he was to expect and believe in, and now it, it brings him hope. It brings him life that the Redeemer is going to come and stand on the earth. And then, finally, he confesses a physical resurrection. In verse 26 and 27, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints in me. Now, Often Old Testament prophecies, we say, are telescoped. It's if you've driven across toward the Rocky Mountains, and you'll see what looks like one range of mountains until you get to the first range, there's another range, another range, another range. And that's often what happens in Old Testament prophecies. As they look to the future, uh, it all looks as if it's going to be telescoped. So Job now is telescoping the full reality of uh, Christ's incarnation, our resurrection, and final vindication. Now, in Christ's incarnation is the seed of our resurrection and vindication. But he is just seeing all this now together, but he, he knows he's going to... He's going quickly to the tomb. He describes death in these very graphic terms. My skin is destroyed. He's talked about being eaten by the worm. Um, Yet from my flesh I shall see God for myself. I will see it, not another. Let's see, he's yearning for this. My heart is yearning within me for this. Faces death, that's all. Recognizes that he'll have no vindication as far as. the very flesh that was then being eaten away. That same body, he was going to be raised from the dead, just as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This body, sown in mortality, raised in immortality. Not another body, but your body, the body you're in right now, preserved by the Almighty God in death, will be brought back to life in the resurrection. And that's what the Spirit enables Job to confess here, that he is going to be raised from the dead. He's going to behold Christ at the last day. And he's going to be vindicated. Now that's the glory of all this, you see. Because you're in Christ, because he's been raised from the dead, then you know he's coming again. 
And when he comes again, whether you've died and have been living with him in your soul, or whether you're alive when he comes and you're changed, every one of you then will see him with your very eyes and will be vindicated of all the accusations of Satan against you. That's what our confession means when it talks about this acquittal on the day of judgment. It's not some kind of new justification. It's just the public declaration. Even if you read in John, the world does not know us. It does not recognize who we are, what we have in Christ. Uh, but there'll come a day when he comes that it'll all be acknowledged and we will be vindicated. That he was vindicated. What a glorious, confident confession. I hope this morning that you can make this confession. I hope you boys and girls can make this confession even now in your life. That Jesus Christ is your Redeemer. You know that He's living. You know that you're alive in Him. You know He's going to come again for you and bring you safely unto Himself forevermore. I know that my Redeemer lives. It's wonderfully summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first question and answer. What is your own comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Well, Job's confident confession leads into a confident challenge. Remember, he's in this wrestling match with his counselors, with his friends who keep pounding on him, health, wealth, and prosperity theology, that Job, you're suffering because you're evil. And Job in his conscience knew he wasn't evil. How is he going to explain this? Well, here he comes back to them. He's already asked them for, for compassion. But now he brings a challenge to them in verses 28 and 29, a very confident challenge. If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a case against him can we find? And I think that's better translated that he says the matter or the root of the matter is found in me. So really, he says to them, how shall we persecute him? He responds, for the root of the matter is in me. Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know there is judgment. He turns back to them, and once again he says, uh, why are you persecuting me? That's really what they're doing, you see. They, they have no grounds. They've done no investigation. They have no evidence. But they keep pounding on Job. You're wicked. God is punishing you because you're wicked. If you'll just turn from wickedness, own it, all will be well. And of course, he can't turn from wickedness. He, and he's not really concerned about a physical restitution because his big problem is, is the absence of God. The cloud between him and God. God's become his enemy. He really couldn't care less about crops or anything else at this point. And so they pound on him, and, and there's, there's no hope. So it's, it's being persecuted, pursued, pursued to death. And, and then he, he comes back on the basis of this confession because, listen, the root of the matter is in me. I know my heart, and I know my God, 
And I know that all of this one day will be right. So slack off. Leave me alone. But it hasn't stopped there. He now, I think in a very vicious way, calls them to repentance. Be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings punishment of the sword, so that you may know that there is a judgment. He says, you men are going to reap what you sow. As you're pronouncing all this dire judgment on me, you're sinning against me, you're sinning against God. Understand that all the stuff that you're saying could happen to the wicked could happen to you. That's what he means when he says, be afraid of the sword for yourselves. Wrath brings the My experience here shows you, yes, what can happen to a wicked person. What can happen to one who sins against God, and he turns the table on them. He says, perhaps you are the ones who are at this point sinning against God. And so what he really says is, look at what's happening to me. What you think is because of sin and understand that these manifestations of judgment now are to alert all of us to the reality that there is a greater judgment coming. Now they'd fail to see that. They hadn't gotten outside of this life. They've not thought about the eternal judgment of God. And what Job is saying is understand that uh, yes, I'm suffering and in the temporal punishment or judgment that I am suffering, understand that's just a picture of what's going to happen in eternity. All those who are outside the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very important reminder to us of how to use temporal sufferings. As the Savior says in Luke chapter 13, um, about the, the people that Pilate slayed, says, don't think that they were the only Galilean sinners, no. Let what happened to them be to you a call to repentance. We look around us in the world, we see the terrible things that have happened in Turkey and Syria and other places of the world. And one of the things that God does with those things, yes, he's judging, he's judging sin temporally, although not all who suffer in that judgment are being punished by God. No, some are being chastened, some for God's glory. But in that temporal judgment, there is a call to all, be sure that you're right with the Lord Jesus Christ. That you're resting in him. Because all temporal judgments, all judgments that take place now in this life are but slight pictures of what's going to happen in the world to come. And so Job, bolstered by the Holy Spirit here, makes this confident confession and issues a confident challenge to his friends. He kind of here gets his feet on the ground, you see. He... Uh, He's never going to be quite the same after this. Yes, he's going to stand down with his tongue. There's a new subtleness that seems to come over him. A greater calm that comes to him now as, as he realizes that he has a living redeemer in the Lord God who's going to be uh, incarnate. And you do too. And I want you to know that confidence in Christ, your redeemer, shall indeed, that he'll raise you from the dead, shall indeed bolster you in times of affliction. And strengthen you against slander. He is your savior. This is your confession. And this is your challenge then to Satan. Who would come as the accuser. That no, I am in Christ. So do you know this morning that Christ is your redeemer? 
And thus, in the midst of your trials, as grievous as they might be, that you have a perfect hope in him. And that he will deliver you. And if not now, on the last day. Well, if you know that Christ is your Redeemer, there's two responses that, to which I would direct your attention. A heavenly mindedness and heavenly preparation. If you confess that Christ is your Redeemer, then where should your thoughts be? Yes, in the midst of trials and difficulties, but in daily living and walking. Should you not be meditating on Christ above? Seated with him in the heavenly places there, let your mind be. Should you not be reveling in Christ in you, the hope of glory? Should you not be thinking on eternal verities and truths and the reality and the glory of heaven itself when everything will be made right? This is how you're to prepare. This is how you're to conduct yourself in the midst of, of all your various trials and difficulties. Some of you have been through very serious trials in the last few weeks. There's no better place to look than heaven. Your Savior is enthroned in heaven. He's there for you as your kinsman redeemer in heaven. For no one else but his people. He's there. He's in heaven. He's there for you, the kinsman redeemer. Not for angels. None but those for whom he obeyed and suffered and died. Set your mind on Christ in the midst of all these trials and difficulties. Even if you seek comfort and help and friends, and we should do that, understand that beyond and underlying all of that, that our true help and comfort is that God is our rock and our redeemer. And then, if you're going to be heavenly minded, then you prepare for that. And uh, we do what John tells us in 1 John chapter 3. That since you have this hope, that you're going to see Christ and be like him. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So heavenly mindedness leads to heavenly preparation. If this is your, is your hope, then you should be preparing for it. In the way a bride prepares for a wedding, we shall spend hours and days uh, picking out a wedding dress, going through all of the plans for the wedding, all that grand day, all for that groom, and when God brings them together. And see, our groom is coming for us. And he says, prepare. So how do we, how do we prepare? We prepare by the pursuit of holiness, by the pursuit of being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is your hope, then he is your delight. If he is your delight, then you want to be like him. You don't want to walk in lawlessness. You want to walk in righteousness as the child of God. So my dear friends, if you confess today that Christ is your redeemer, how I urge you to pursue that righteousness without which one shall see the Lord. May it be your passion in this life to live for God's glory, your passion to die to sin every day, to put it off, to put on Christ, to walk in him as you seek to be like him. Now, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's very interesting. The, the very three things that Job confesses are three things that God now is going to demonstrate to us. And undergirding all that is a confidence because this is for your confidence. As Job confidence from the future, you now have confidence that your Redeemer lives and he comes to you in the table 
And he speaks to you by a spirit through the taking of these elements by faith that he is your redeemer. He tells you he is a living redeemer. He tells you he is an incarnate redeemer. And he promises you that you're going to see him with the eyes of flesh at the end of the age. Let us pray. Oh, perfect and holy God, we thank you for this remarkable confession of faith that your spirit gives to us here, that we have a redeemer who lives, who shall indeed live forever as the God-man and whom we shall see at the resurrection. We thank you for the hope that belongs to us in him in the midst of all of our trials, Lord, and our difficulties, that we have a redeemer who loves us. We pray, Lord, as we make this transition now to your table, that you'll further confirm these truths to us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.